Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. You might have heard tell that cybersecurity is all over the news and all over social media lately. Heck, first two episodes we did a heard tell. The first episode was about elections. The second episode was about legal terminology online being used wrong. And we ended up talking about cybersecurity during both conversations. That's how much cybersecurity and issues with social media and the Internet and our personal information has just gotten into every aspect of our life. Things like the Colonial Pipeline incident, where all of a sudden you have gas lines because people are panicking over a cybersecurity news item, goes to show that a lot of people react to these things, but we don't really understand it. Well, the thing about cybersecurity is it's really old concepts with a new high-tech twist. And that high-tech twist means we have a lot of terminology and nomenclature that I really wonder if everybody understands what they're saying. In fact, our guest today, John McCumber, who's been a cybersecurity expert before it was even called cybersecurity, contends that that's the very point. We don't have a common lexicon for discussing the issues that involve cybersecurity, risk management, information assurance, and protecting our privacy online when more and more of our lives are just that, online and available to almost everybody. With those connections comes a lot of good and a lot of bad. Tim Berners-Lee, who, unlike Al Gore, actually did invent the internet, put it this way. He said, the fact that we're all connected, the fact that we've got this information space does change the parameters. It changes the way people live and work. It changes the things from good and for bad. But I think in general, it's clear that most bad things come from misunderstanding. And communication is generally the way to resolve misunderstandings. And the web's a form of communication. So in generally, it should be good. But in order to have that good communication that he's talking about, we have to all be talking off the same lexicon of words. So John McCumber is going to explain to us what is and what is not cybersecurity. He's going to talk about risk management. And he's going to talk about how the cybersecurity business and the information assurance business is like all other businesses. It's a people business. The reason the communication is going to be important and understanding what's going on is because behind all these terms and all this high-tech stuff, it's still people making decisions and understanding who they are, why they're making those decisions, and how those decisions affect our lives will give us a much better understanding when we see the term cybersecurity getting thrown around. He'll talk about why he hates the term hacks. And we'll even explain how the term security itself is not a great word for what we're trying to discuss and even compare it to love, believe it or not. So whatever you heard tell about cybersecurity, it's time to get some good information about it and it's some applicable things that we can take into the discourse when we're discussing it and when we hear news items about it. John McCumber, right after this on Hertel.
And I'm very thrilled to have my friend John McCumber with me. John, how you doing up there with your the man in the high castle with the brand new sodded yard, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting many years for finally getting some good southern sod. So uh, it's good to talk to you today, Andrew, and appreciate always good to, to follow up and uh, see what's new with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to catch up with you. He's enjoying those spoils of life because he's had a lifetime as a cybersecurity expert, a lecturer. He's written a textbook. He's also a retired Air Force officer. We'll talk about all that. John, your auspices for the last few years has been cybersecurity. I know you've talked about it. You've written a couple piece about it. Um, the Colonial Pipeline, uh, not really a hack, but a, a, a ransomware type attack. Yep. Um, I'm I'm old enough that I've seen a couple of these now. We had the Stuxnet virus. I'm old enough to remember the uh, the OPM hack where the Chinese got all the government folks' data. Yep. It sure looks like we're going to repeat the pattern again where we had a news cycle, it affected everybody, and now everybody's going to go back to forgetting about things like cybersecurity for a while until it happens again, right? Well, that's uh, certainly, uh, uh, you know, history would point in that direction. So I, I'm not surprised that we are where we are. Uh, I'm actually in the process of writing another uh, article for Ordinary Times right now on that, uh, the issue of um uh, cybersecurity consulting and, and my experience uh, in that world. And so it talks about uh, where these issues come from, why they become problems, why they continue to resurface, and uh, why we fail to learn from the past. So I'm uh, looking forward to putting that together and finishing that and uh, and sharing that with our readers there. Yeah, and you can find John's work at ordinary-times.com. We're thrilled to have him. John, I... I... I imagine I think one thing that happens people hear the term cybersecurity or IT security and yep. artificial they hear all these this nomenclature that brings up things like computers and technology but the fact of the matter is cybersecurity is like every other business it's a people business and it's very heavily relying on what type of people you have involved in their chains of commands and their ability levels and that varies quite a bit. So cybersecurity is like everything else. It just depends on who's doing it, why they're doing it, and who they're answering to while they do it, isn't it? Well, pretty much. It's uh, One of the things I like to talk about is, is that, you know, cybersecurity is the latest word we use. It started off when I got into business in 1988. It was called computer security. Uh, and then it became information assurance, information operations, uh, information. Uh, we have resiliency now, uh, cybersecurity. And these terms have all evolved over the years and, and have come to mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, and what unfortunately they do, they don't add a lot of light and, and help us understand or direct us to what they mean, uh, which is one thing in the last role I had as a cybersecurity advocate for a membership organization. Uh, I sat and they said, look at, let's look out the industry and you tell us what we need. And so like they having written a textbook on this, having taught at a university for a number of years, I looked around among our members who are all cybersecurity practitioners and realized, you know what we needed? We needed a primer. And they go, what? I said, we need a lexicon. I said, every time I go out to meet with people, when I meet with uh, legislators, which was one of the things I had to do in my job was to meet with uh, congressional staffers, senatorial committees and their staffers, uh, met with Congress people. Uh, I had a wonderful opportunity to meet in a lot of government leaders. Uh, and, and what was the biggest surprise, I guess, it, it, to the whole, uh, um, to that whole effort was finding out that people use terms improperly in cybersecurity. 
starting off the gate, let's start with the word security. It's a terrible word. It, it's, a, it's a transitory and idyllic state, not unlike love. You know, I've been married 43 years. Is there love in that relationship? I'm sorry, 41. <laughs> I just, never mind. I won't show you the side angle I got here. Was, it, was that, I, I, was I that time off for good behavior or how's that yeah. work? You, or is it, is it like my, is it like my family where they deduct the deployment time off all, you know, <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't count. <laughs> all time frames is like, well, you're three years behind everybody else. So when you talk about the word security, it, it's a transitory and idyllic state. There's just, there's nothing. So when people say, well, we need to be more secure or we need to have security, the word already puts you on a bad footing. You're not, you're, you're not having an intelligent conversation because there's no way of saying what is security and what's not security. Uh, and so that's why I like to talk about the elements of risk management. Uh, all security is a risk management job. We make risk-based decisions. Uh, none of us is ever secure. None of us ever free. You know, these are all words that uh, get so easy to, to misuse. So we talk about what are the threats, and then that's where we talk about the term. And I hate this term, and I'm going to say it, uh, and I'm not going to say it much, but I'll, I'll use that hacker term. Uh, it's an inaccurate term. It, it, you know, is there a good person? Is that a bad person? Is that have evil intent? Is that curiosity? How does that play out? And it depends, of course, on context. So that's why I think it's, you know, we can talk about malicious actors. Uh, we can talk about, um, you know, young people who are curious about technology and stumble into, into, into new knowledge. And there's a lot of ways to look at, at those, uh, what those are, but at, using that term doesn't help. Um, then we can talk about vulnerabilities and how they're exploited and talk specifically about what those are in IT systems, in operational systems, and in what they call the Internet of Things, which are basically just uh, new extensions of the IT environment, like your refrigerator or stove. So we have all these evolving elements, and then we have, of course, what it is I'm trying to protect here, and you know whether that's the mission in the case of Colonial Pipeline, they are protecting the mission, which is delivering oil and gas via pipeline. So uh, we have a mission to protect. Then we have to look that once we determine that creates a risk environment, threat, vulnerability, and which in turn impacts an asset, those three elements. That tuple creates the environment we call risk. Then of course we have uh, you know, if you put them up in the numerator and then put what we call safeguards in the denominator, and I know I said there wasn't going to be math, we talk about the safeguards. We can use technology, we can use policies and procedures, and we can, of course, then have people, which exactly what you alluded to, and they're critical to this. So being able to take those elements and combine them and what make people effective in what we call cybersecurity. Well, it's, it's interesting to me... Um... We have layer. All this is it's it's all a moving target, of course. But all these risk factors are kind of stuck inside of this ball that's already. It's like the planet's orbiting. You have the risk management of something like Colonial Pipeline, but then you have it. It's also a company, but then you also have it as a national security type situation because it's a fuel supplier, one of the few that we have. That that's a lot of orbits and juggling in the universe, and then you have this one thing of cybersecurity that that linchpin comes out and the whole thing falls apart. That's a lot yeah. of moving stuff, John. There are, and it's specifically we like to talk about all these, as you alluded to, these jurisdictions. We have national jurisdictions, we have operational business jurisdictions, we have state 
and local governments involved here. And we have a variety of these intersecting uh, areas of responsibility. So who's responsible? Uh, for the last 20 years, our government has come out and talked about the need uh, for public-private partnerships. And they talk about how we need to you know, bring together the best uh, minds that we have in government and, and our, what we do on a government side of things for security, and then pair that up with uh, the business side of things. Now, of course, the challenge we have doing that in the United States is that unlike some countries, uh, our government doesn't exist to promote and uh, build our business community. Uh, so they're, they're, we don't have that uh, strong connection that they do in some other countries, some even EU countries like France or others where the government is tightly aligned with industry uh, in order to try to promote their national industries. So being able to separate where those uh, you know, responsibilities lie and how they're impacted across these various jurisdictions is critically important. I hope I just didn't say a bunch of words that don't make sense. No, I understood almost all of them. Um, <laughs> you joke about words that make sense, but isn't a lot of the problem with this, like something like cybersecurity, it's new nomenclature. Obviously, the technology is new, but the actual concepts, like you said, this is just risk management on a new playing field, really. It's it's not really new concepts. It's not that strange from, a, you know, the ancient Grecian army doing force protection. It's just kind of old concepts with a new technology, and then you get the new nomenclature, and everybody's like, ugh, and kind of yeah. react to it. But it, it's the concepts of risk management are pretty universal for this stuff if we kind of step back and think through it nice and slow, right? That's pretty much it, Andrew. And one of the things that uh, uh, you know I like to talk about and teach is to make sure that, and that's why we had to do this lexicon, this, you know, go back to basics. So when I say the words risk, and if I say security, if I say threat, that we're talking about the same thing. That, that's what's critical because ultimately people are very familiar with risk management. It's something we as humans do all the time. The, the, the challenge that we have in cybersecurity is we need empirical evidence and we need to be able to base that, uh, a lot of our decisions on that kind of empirical analysis and getting that data and then massaging it correctly is, is what's difficult. Uh, people, as a rule, uh, deal with risk all the time. You might be walking down the street and you might see uh, beautiful green lawns and little picket fences and, and you know kids playing croquet in the front yard. And then you walk, uh, I don't know, you know, six or eight blocks in another direction and you might see chain link fences, barbed wire, you know, uh, graffiti on the walls of old buildings and uh you know trash in the streets and you're saying hey well, what's changed and and maybe you don't want to walk down this alley now that the sun's going down or something in this neighborhood versus somewhere else and this is the risk management game we're playing in our heads all the time we just don't call it that so one of the things that i would demonstrate to students uh was based on a uh, the old issue with the Ford pinto and this is a an element that's really important to me back in the day because of uh, a little red-haired girl I was dating uh, off post, and she was off post and lived in the community. Uh, she um, had a Ford Pinto at the time. I didn't. I was walking. I didn't have a car, and uh, so this was important to me. We watched that 60-minute uh, special that said, uh, you know, explain what was happening with the Ford Pintos that uh, would, would apparently catch on fire. The likelihood of that happening, and one of the things that came out in that uh, whole uh, assessment was that Ford had done a calculation based on whether or not they needed to change the design based on how much they valued a human life. And 
remember the number, somewhere around $7 million per human life. And of course, people were outraged and shocked that, that somebody would factor that into their, you know, their kind of analysis, their business analysis is the value of human life. And, you know, they're like, what? You can't put a value on human life. These are beautiful, unique human beings. You know, we're all, you know, important to God. All, you know, all, everybody brought up moral agreements and, and, and other types of things uh, into that argument. But what's interesting to me is I had students of a class that I was teaching at Carnegie Mellon one time. Uh, there's a busy street that runs right down past Carnegie Mill, right through the middle of Pittsburgh called Baum Avenue. It's a busy place. So I said, let me just show you something here. And I went to an intersection where students crossed this very busy street. It was a dangerous place. And I went and put a quarter in that crosswalk. And we watched and see how anybody would stop and pick up the quarter. And the quarter pretty much stayed there most of the time. But then I went out one time, put a $10 bill, put a rock on it, put it in that intersection. And I'll be darned, it didn't take long for somebody to bend over, take a quick glance left and right, judge it safe enough, grab that $10 bill and walk across the, uh, finish walking across the street. I said, you know what that person just did? They paid a dollar figure on their life. They're like, no, no, really? I said, absolutely. The risk of them getting run over, bent over in that intersection right there increased, you know, their risk to their health and safety dramatically. But they figured it was worth it for a 10 bucks where it wasn't worth it for a quarter. So we do these, you know, we make decisions on whether or not we're going to smoke, whether or not we're going to drink, uh, what, what, uh, you know, what kind of things that we uh, undertake, or is it worth it to us to do these certain kind of hobbies? You know, do we go skydiving, scuba diving? What do we do? And, and how do we expend the days that we're given here on this earth? And we're constantly making risk judgments along those lines. We just do it with our heart and not necessarily with a pen and paper. It's interesting because the other side of all those equations, there's either a company or a government or an outside actor that's making the opposite calculation. I know when I was in management with a freight company, if we had a, a one of our trucks got in an accident with an injury, they automatically jerked a million dollars out of the budget and put it in escrow. Yep. And if it was a fatality accident, it was $5 million. Like wow. instantly, like that day they yep. did it because they just knew you know, there's yep. going to be a lawsuit. There's going to yep. be cost associations right out, of the, right out of the general budget. And it's something we we told, you know, people during their safety is like, look, our bonuses come out of the general the general budget. You don't want to have an accident. It hurts everybody. Mm -hmm. So one of these things with risk management, I think, and we forget on, on cybersecurity, everybody's talking about risk management like, oh, I don't want to have identity theft or something like that. And they don't yeah. realize there's this whole other side of it is you have one of these major companies go down. Um, you know, imagine just just picking one here. At, you know, Facebook goes offline for five minutes. Everybody loses their mind. Right. Imagine if it's something malicious or if it's something oh, yeah. where, you know, like that. There, There's there's always the other side of these things with risk management. I don't think people get the 360 view of it. No, you're absolutely right. And, and like I say, risk management is something that's like it's a something we do as humans innately. Uh, and what we do if you're in cybersecurity, if you're responsible for cybersecurity in an organization uh, or evaluating it, you have to become uh, much, very adept at that process. And like I say, and understand and collect the right metrics and apply the right metrics and help guide the organization. Because one of the things that uh, I've always talked about, you know, we talk about these people that in roles in, gov in government and industry, there's a role at was popularized about 20 years ago called the Chief Information Security Officer. And that, that, that evolved out of a recognition that 
there should be somebody at that you know CXO level uh, with that expertise and, and and be able to talk to people in the C-suite as we call it and be able to express the concerns about that. I honestly think that role should be outside the organization completely because you need an advisor. You need somebody to look in from outside and go, here's the risk factors. Have you considered this? Have you considered that? Um, here's the likelihood of this happening. This is the impact on the organization. Uh, if you're inside an organization and you're trying to make the, the case for these, uh, you're going to be influenced by everybody from HR to the CFO to everybody else, you know, all these various things pulling at you because you're a member of the organization. Uh, outside the organization, you're going to have more freedom and the ability to lay that out. One of the things I learned at the Pentagon when I was providing these risk analyses for our leaders at the Pentagon uh, was that they're not going to sit there and accept everything you say. Uh, they're not going to say, you know, I agree with you. That is risky. We're going to implement this process right now. When you share somebody and share that risk with them, they have three choices to make. They can accept the risk, they can mitigate the risk, or they can attempt to or transfer the risk. When you buy insurance, you know, uh, I have lousy genetics. Uh, my dad died at 59, my sister at 51. So as, as mm. a new father and a husband, I was always concerned about making sure I could care for my family in the event that uh, uh, I had to uh, meet my maker earlier than I would have preferred. So what I did was set up and I got life insurance so that it would uh, cover my kids. They could go to school. They could continue on with their lives. My wife could continue her life. And, and so those were important ways to transfer some of that risk onto somebody else like buying life insurance. Uh, we have all kinds of options we use to manage risk in life. Uh, we can just look at it. Some people, you know, if you're going skydiving, you say, yeah, this is the risk. But you know what? I'm leaping out of this airplane because it looks like fun. I accept the risk. And then there's this, this middle way, which is risk mitigation. And this is where all the things get real interesting. And that's where you have the opportunity to determine how much and how much you're going to pay to mitigate that risk. And that's where we are in cybersecurity. It's not that we can't mitigate all these risks, but some of them, you know, may be too expensive. Maybe the business, you know, it, it's not within the business confines and they're, they're willing to accept a certain amount of risk. Uh, of course, then the fun happens when uh, we do realize that risk and have to deal with the consequences. You talked about dealing with consequences. You wrote about Pearl Harbor file where it came to the colonial. <laughs> and to your credit, you wrote that before it happened that there's going to be there's going to be somebody. And I edited the piece, so I know it came out before yep. you did. But you called it and you said there's somebody's going to drop the the drop the inside opsec on this. Yep. That hey, we told them ahead of time not to do this, and they did. Right. The the thing with all this security stuff, there there's an old maxim that every rule is reactionary. Um, there's so much reaction. Almost everything that gets done is actually reactionary because everybody can usually see for the most part what's coming. They just mm -hmm. can't react to everything that they think might be coming because it's just right. impossible to do it. And that's right. where you get into what you're talking about, the risk mitigation of people going, well, we're going to tell you this, and then we're going to kind of make sure you put it in writing so that we play yep. CYA with ourselves. Yep. How much of that is going to be fixable technology-wise, and how much of that is just stuff we got to learn to live with? Yeah, that's, there's a, uh, you know, that part of that, having that Pearl Harbor file, I always did it. I guarantee I did it at the Pentagon. So every time I address risk, I gave three options uh, to the leadership. I said, here's the risk I've identified. Uh, you can accept the risk, and this is the, you know, possible outcomes and, and the impact they're going to have. 
uh, here's what it's going to cost you to mitigate the risk. And you can do number A, number, you know, full remediation, partial remediation, limited remediation. You can lay those out. Or then I could do the, here's how you transfer the risk to somebody else. You let them carry the risk. Uh, let me use a quick example before I come on with that. You know, years ago, I used to get hit by all my relatives, you know, in the, you know, days of the viruses and everything back in the 90s. And they go, you know, I just saw a thing. Somebody can get your credit card number. You know, oh, my God, how do I protect my credit card number? And I go, I don't care about my credit card number. I said, I'll give it to you. You want it? I'll give it to you over the phone. And I'll give you the, the, the little three-digit, four-digit code for my Amex. I'm going to give you the expiry date. And I said, because at the end of the day, the, the card, my card issuers carry the risk. All I have to do is pick up the phone, call, and go, I didn't authorize this charge. Is this your signature? No. Did you? No. And guess what they do? They eliminate the charge from my credit card. And uh, they give me, uh, they, in the case of the one I have now, they'll FedEx me one. It'll be on my porch tomorrow morning. So, you know, this is... It's understanding who carries the risk. And I had explained that to my relative. Are you carrying the risk in, in, in the case of your credit card? And as we talked about it and looked at their thing, the answer was, well, no, I'm not carrying the risk. I said, then why are you worried about it? So one of these things that, that we all have to be sensitive to as part of this is understanding who's carrying that risk. Uh, risk is like a big box, uh, a, a heavy crate we might be carrying around, real heavy, heavy material. So we want to determine, you know, how we can shrink that box of risk that we carry around to its manageable. Uh, and that's what Colonial Pipeline probably, you know, that, you know, <laughs> I, not only did I know uh, uh, that, that somebody would come forward with a, hey, I looked at this and this is what I told them back then. Uh, I, I also know that they were going to start hiring somebody to fill that role and either somebody got axed who was there that had the role uh, or they were making a new role for somebody. Uh, but that just came out. Uh, I saw that uh, float about two days after the attack, they're looking for a cybersecurity manager. Uh, so Imagine you know, that. Goes, Oh yeah. And they go like, John, you, you want to come out and take that job? I said, I said, are you kidding? What a great job. I said, this bad thing's already happened. I guarantee oh, you the yeah. wallets are open. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah, that guy's a new Pope. He can do whatever he wants for yeah, about six years months. Though. Pope, yeah, for six months, and that's about right. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a real interesting to look at it in the concept of risk management, and that, and then you see the nuances that are involved in it. It's not simple. It's not that hey, I told the guy to fix it. I, I used to do consulting in this business. I've done it for government. I've done it for commercial. I've done it for local government. When I was doing consulting, everybody's got some subset of about 30 problems. And the, the ransomware attack on Colonial uh, Pipeline, the attack, the threat wasn't unique or interesting as much as the vulnerability that was exploited. So what you see here is a vulnerability that many organizations have. And so what you see is that this threat comes in, exploits this vulnerability. And when I did consulting, you go in site and you go like, yep. And you just, all you're doing when you're there talking to their leadership and talking to the people in the field is determining which subset of those 25 to say 30 key cybersecurity vulnerabilities does this organization have. And then what you do is you go back home and you've already got these all written up, right? So you go back home and go, you have, you know, numbers 1, 3, 7, 9, 12, 23. And, you're, and so the, the big secret to all this is it's not a big secret. 
uh, organizations have these and, and you can see where they evolve from. You can see that. And then you propose that they, uh, you know, here's, here's my proposals for you to mitigate those. And then they'll make a financial decision. Do I want to mitigate the risk or do I want to take time to do it? And that's where, uh, that's where the problems ultimately then come about when something, you know, that they hope didn't happen happens. I got a picture in my head when you were doing that, that you had the big tumbler thing and it was like risk management bingo. And you're just calling yeah. the numbers and with a big, you know, tumbler and you're pulling them out like, you know, B48. Uh, yep. Oh, backdoor virus hack. Okay. Yeah. You, you've got that vulnerability or you got, you know, vulnerabilities in your, uh, you know, on your third party systems. And you got the, you know, and that's, that's where these come from. Uh, my dad had an old country saying, you know, and, 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 and about, you know, things that, you know, we worry about. And he goes, son, you know, you're going to worry about a lot of stuff in your life. And you're going to, and, and he goes, but let me tell you, worries are like bowling balls running down an alley at you. And he goes, out of 10 of them, eight of them are going to end up in the gutter before they get to you. You know, and you know what? And then mm. the one that's going to get you is the one that comes from the other side. <laughs> you don't even, you didn't even know it was possible. Yeah. And and so that was uh, something that's always stuck with me. And that's the same thing about, you know, that I, I took into my professional career uh, in advising people. I'd say, look, at, you know, it's, it's your call if you want to spend this money. Well, that's expensive. I, I don't know if we can afford that. I, I understand that. That's That's not my call. You know, but but again, as a consultant, I'd always say, "Sign here. Here's where I told you about it," and that's what this. Now, this this guy was a real, you know, I, I think he's hurt his career pretty badly uh, for dumping the you know colonial. Because I mean, you know, all those security consultants that you've paid over the years, you know, they're all sitting at home. They got copies of all this stuff they did uh, over the years. And they've got. I know it's all labeled, you know client secret and everything else, but uh, these exist on computers at consultant firms with individuals on private consultants. And so somebody's got your dirty secrets out there. Speaking of your professional life, to switch gears for just a second, sure. though, but you're retired military. Yeah. Uh, before your cybersecurity bit, I was in the military, but we're two different generations of military. Yes. Social media has just been having a field day over the media and that the military is getting too woke. It's it's being watered down. It's being this. It's being that. And I don't want to get into the specific policies of it because not my first rodeo. Uh, yep. I served under three very different presidents in Clinton, W. Bush and President Obama. Yeah. All three of them treated the military very differently. I'm not saying badly. I'm just they just had different viewpoints in the military. And plus, yeah. 9/11 happened, which, to be fair to Presidents Bush and Obama, changed everything. Yeah. Um, people don't realize the military has its own culture. But I wanted to ask you because your your time of service, you came into the military right after Vietnam. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people that they've read the history books, they know the protests and that they don't understand that the military post Vietnam culturally was not in a good place. And yeah, by yeah. the time we get to 9-11, it was actually in a pretty good place. You spanned a lot of that. So when we, when people are talking about military culture, you were there for kind of one of the real, real low points in military culture history in the late se mid to late 70s. Yep. Talk about that a little bit for folks that don't know that, you know, the military military culture is something that changes constantly, not the ethos, which is a different thing. The warrior ethos is there. But the culture, because it's a reflection of the American culture, you, you were there for one of the real low points when it really was bad. Talk yeah. about that for folks and just kind of explain, like, look, it, it's bad, but they dug out of it, and it's made it what it is now, and that's why we need to 
keep that in perspective going forward. Yeah, uh, it was a real, it was a time that, that you accurately described as a low point. Uh, you know, you saw it in the, in the way people did their jobs, in the way the men and women I had the privilege of serving with. Uh, you know, primarily, again, I was a young enlisted guy. I came in and, and I worked with a lot of other young enlisted guys. And we were products of that generation, that post-60s uh, generation. My dad uh, came out of World War II. He was a combat veteran in World War II with the U.S. Navy. Uh, two Purple Hearts uh, was on board the USS Wasp when she was sunk um, and, and was one of only 25% of the crew that survived uh, wow. out, of the, out of the half of uh, the, the crew that, that uh, didn't die in the explosions, wow. about the half that went, ended up in the sea, another quarter of them drowned or eaten by sharks. And, and my dad was uh, one of the uh, you know, 25% uh, that were pulled out of the ocean uh, 24 hours later and uh, sent to, to get rehab. And, and so, you know, and then he was sent back, of course, after his rehab. And at that time, they were closing down the war. He sent to uh, Mindoro in the Philippines. And so you see this generation that went through all that. And then you see, you know, then there's, I, I look back and I have to believe my father couldn't understand what his world was happening to his world in 1960s and 1970s when I was in high school. You know, you, you had, you know, the hippie thing going on. You had the Jane Fonda thing going on. You had Vietnam War. You had, you know, marijuana. You, get, you know, you look at that whole social milieu, you know, that whole cultural milieu that was taking place there. My dad was a fish out of water, my mom and dad. They, they were the great greatest generation. And and they, I, I just, I look at that and say, what is that? Now, of course, I was formed by a lot of that. Those are my peers. Those are the, 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 the kids that I grew up with. And we went into the military and we didn't know what we got. Uh, I, I, I would love to say that I joined the military because uh, John McCumber served at, in, uh, uh, you know, under uh, Sherman and, uh, and out of the, uh, you know, 117th Illinois. Uh, and, and, you know, I've got a lot of proud history of my family. Uh, my father is World War. My uncle was a World War II Navy veteran. You know, I had a grandfather that served. That great, great grandfather. Like I say, they go back. I go back through the Civil War. My my name, my family name. I joined to join the circus. You know, I I bounced around town as a as kind of a ne'er do well with no no future in sight. And and I had seen. You know, I was proud of my father and seen that he was a good man. And I said, I don't know if this is going to help, but I'm going to try something completely different. And that's when I walked into the recruiter and I got into a military that was obviously not my father's military. And it was a it, it was an interesting cultural awakening for me, although, like I say, it did do what, you know, it does for a lot of, you know, young people uh, and, and, and people like me, who is a misguided young person. My father had been dead, uh, you know, and, and died. And, and so, you know, I was left with my handicapped mother. And so I just ran off to, and, and it. You know, I I fell into a system that made me be a helped me become a better person. So that system, even though it was a low point in the military, that system allowed a dumb kid from Illinois, uh, a rootless, uh, feckless kid without any direction in life and and, and no discernible skills, to develop uh, into into a functioning adult. And for that, I'll always be grateful. But it was a very different time than what I've seen when I retired. I I wanted to ask you that because when the post-Vietnam era, there was a lot of questions of, okay, what is the military? Like existential yeah. questions of, all right, 
are we going to be a draft military? Are we going to be an all-volunteer military? Are we going to have, you know, is diversity going to work in the military? These were all things that were real issues at the time. Yeah. And thankfully, they took the right course of action and, and made it what it is now. And then it has its up and downs. It's not perfect. Yeah. But it's it's. I, I think people sometimes get a little wrapped up in the in the minutia of the moment, not understanding that, you know, the, the United States military moves glacially, culturally. It, it moves slowly. <laughs> yes, it does. But that's not a in and of itself on a lot of reasons. There's there's things that need to change. But that's not a bad thing in and of itself because institutionally it there it's stable and it's one of the most well respected institutions we have when you poll it with normal people. Yeah, and, and, and like see from my experience, I would I understand, like say that I have nothing but the greatest respect. I worked with some of the best uh, men and women that uh, that I had the privilege of ever knowing. And and like I mentioned earlier, you know, the the, the outright mendacious, uh, skullduggery type of things that I've seen in commercial, I, I really didn't see a lot of that in the Air Force. I mean, I'm sure there was stuff going on, and maybe I wasn't just privileged to see it where I was sitting, but uh, I, I've been, like say, I worked with people who always had the best interests of the nation and, and their service at heart, and, and, and it was a real affirming uh, growth for me. I, I count it a blessing to get those experiences of the multicultural aspect of the military yeah. and, and getting to do that. And then I got to travel overseas a lot and live overseas myself. So that was all good stuff. Yeah, that uh, is. You're John McCumber. He's uh, got several things in the fire as he navigates semi-retirement. You can find him on Twitter at Johnny Molina. You want to explain your Twitter handle? Because I know, I know it was kind of a joke <laughs> and now you're stuck with it. But I, I'm stuck with it. Actually, I'm at John McCumber. Uh, which is just, I go by my name. So I'm, I'm sorry, John I had it wrong. John McCumber, but you're yeah. Johnny Molina on your tag. I, I put myself, I always like the con, the name Johnny Dollar. I used to listen to that old radio program uh, and this, for a nostalgia thing. It was hilarious. So I would look to that. But somebody else on Twitter has Johnny Dollar. So I grew up in, uh, I said, rather isolated area. Uh, it, I was uh, in, uh, in the city limits of Moline, Illinois. Uh, my dad worked for John Deere after the war. So uh, I just picked up the name of my hometown, and uh, and I've never been Johnny in my life to anybody, uh, not to my military colleagues, my wife, my family, nobody. I'm John, uh, but it was just an opportunity to pick up a moniker, and uh, now I'm stuck with it. Now you're stuck being Johnny, so congratulations. He writes all the time at uh, Ordinary-Times.com. We're thrilled to have him. He's got all kinds of great experiences and story, everything from cybersecurity to driving around a half-drunk ZZ Top. You can read about that story sometime. Uh, my friend, we'll do this again. I love shooting the breeze with you. We'll do food soon, and I uh, hope to get you back on here again soon. It was my pleasure, Andrew. Always good to talk to you, and, and uh, hope we do it again soon. I look Th- forward to it. Thank you, sir. You know, one of the reasons we wanted to do Herd Tell in the first place was to get people like John McCumber who have a lifetime of experience and all the knowledge in the world on the topic, but are also very able to just explain it in a plain language way that everybody can understand it. And this is a subject that is constantly changing. Things with cybersecurity, as John told you, since he started, it's always changing. In fact, just since we've recorded this episode, we've had another high-profile incident with the JBS meatpacking hack. These sorts of events are going to keep happening and keep showing up in the news, so it's important to understand some of the underlying principles. For example, just this month, President Biden issued an executive order 
on cybersecurity, and part of it reads in part, the United States faces persistent and increasingly sophisticated malicious cyber campaigns that threaten the public sector, the private sector, and ultimately the American people's security and privacy. The federal government must improve its efforts to identify, deter, protect against, detect, and respond to these actions and actors. The federal government must also carefully examine what occurred before, during, and after major cyber incidents and apply lessons learned. But cybersecurity requires more than government action. Protecting our nation from malicious cyber actors requires the federal government to partner with the private sector. The private sector must adapt to the continuously changing threat environment, ensure its products are built and operate securely, and partner with the federal government to foster a more secure cyberspace. In the end, the trust we place in our digital infrastructure should be proportional to how trustworthy and transparent that infrastructure is and to the consequences we will incur if that trust is misplaced. Incremental improvements will not give us the security we need. Instead, the federal government needs to make bold changes and significant investments in order to defend the vital institutions that underpin the American way of life. Mighty fine words from the president. But as John explained, we need to be careful of the meaning of the words and what they actually mean and understand the limitations of what we can do about it. Cybersecurity is going to continue to be a reactionary thing where folks mostly forget about it until it's too late. And then there'll be a big rush to do something. And then the cycle will start all over again where they go back to forgetting about it. Out of sight, out of mind might make us all feel better. But luckily we have people like John McCumber to explain it to us that there are folks out there that are watching and trying to prevent these things. And we need to listen to them before things get bad. Because afterwards, it's always going to be too late. We thank John McCumber for being on this episode of Her Tell Show. A little bit of housekeeping. We've now gotten the show on iTunes and is available there. So we are on just about all the major platforms that you can stream and enjoy your podcasts from. Please do download, subscribe from whichever one you prefer the most. Leave a comment and leave a rating. Those are very important for the services to know which shows are worth listening to. And we're working really hard to try to make this one something that you'd be willing to share with your friends and family. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on social media at Show on Twitter. You can also email us, show at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, thank you so much for listening. We hope you all be well. Talk to you all soon. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.